G'day, you're listening to Shaw Walker on Reports, a podcast about creating better public reports. We talk with experts about how to create these documents that explain complex issues to a wide audience. You may be in government, in a non-government organisation or in a business, but if you create public reports, this podcast may be for you. The podcast comes from Australian editorial consulting firm Shawwalker DMS, which helps organisations to make reports better. In this episode of Shawwalker on Reports, we're hearing from a world-renowned thinker, Professor Deirdre McCluskey. Professor McCluskey thinks and writes about economics and English and communication and philosophy and history and classics. And if that seems a broad range, try this. She's been a professor in each of those six disciplines at universities in the United States and the Netherlands. She's also a distinguished scholar at the Cato Institute in the US, which is where she was when we had this conversation. I first read Deirdre's book, The Rhetoric of Economics, in the early 1990s. It was already famous by then. She's well known also for her work on economic methods. She's contributed to Clio Metrics, that is, the application of quantitative methods to history. She's a leading scholar of the economic history of Britain's Industrial Revolution. And in recent years, she has become famous all over again for her series of books on the industrial middle class and its values. Books with titles like 2016's Bourgeois Equality, How Ideas, Not Capital or Institutions, Enriched the World. Of particular interest to us today is her thinking about communication. She has looked, perhaps as deeply as anyone, into how the social sciences use persuasive language to spread and advance ideas. She still often refers to this persuasive language by its old name, rhetoric. She also calls it, more colourfully, sweet talk. Also relevant to this podcast is one more thing. Deirdre McCluskey is widely regarded as one of the great stylists of economics writing. She's written a classic book about this too, almost inevitably. It's titled Economical Writing, 35 Rules for Clear and Persuasive Prose. And on top of all that, she's also a powerful speaker, despite the twin handicaps of stuttering and of suffering vocal cord damage later in her life. I've now enjoyed several of her books. I put up a list on the podcast page at shawwalker.net. I've also had the pleasure of speaking with her at length several times in recent years. And she's not just hella smart, she's also a lot of fun. So I started by asking her a fan question. How did she come to be so accomplished in so many areas? The kind of sober reply is that I had been educated at Harvard in economics back in the 60s. And then my first job, my, and I was, I was tenured there, was at the University of Chicago. And at that time, those economics departments were very far apart. One was Keynesian, the other was, well, you could say monetarist or, or uh, uh, um, classical, uh, neoclassical. And so I was puzzled. At the, at the, at the rhetoric of economics as I came to understand it. 
And that led me to the study of classical rhetoric um, and the whole issue of how scientists or husbands and wives or, you know, politicians and citizens persuade each other. Um, my my kind of smart aleck version of this is is that my my heroine is the great American vaudeville and movie comedian Mae West, and she said, "I was Snow White, but I drifted." <laughs> So I was, in the end, I was a professor of English and communication and economics and I was a professor of philosophy in Holland and yeah, all over. McCluskey's father was a Harvard political science professor, but McCluskey credits her mother with instilling curiosity in her. Dad was an expert. And as our, our president, Harry Truman, said, an expert is someone who doesn't want to learn anything new because then he wouldn't be an expert. Whereas my, my, whereas my mom was always, she was oddly, it's, she, she denied it all her life. I kept saying it to her. Mom, you're the intellectual in the family. You're the one who's interested in ideas for their own sake and are always willing to Hitch on and, and inquire into them. And I, so I, I, I think I got that habit from her, or maybe I got it genetically. Mm. So that's one thing. And then this, um, <laughs> I've been everything one could be in a long life in economics from, uh, sort of a wannabe Trotskyist at one extreme, uh, to now an advocate for what I call humanomics at some other extreme. And I've been everything in between. I've been a Keynesian. I've been a standard issue Democrat. Um, I've been a social engineer. I've been a Chicago school economist. And, and, and I don't do this just because I'm crazy, although there's some evidence that I am. Um, it's because I keep I keep seeing new truths uh, because of this intellectual curiosity that my my mother imparted. As you're about to hear, McCluskey spent a lot of time talking with me about how we use words to communicate and persuade. In fact, the more I think about it, the more I realize that persuasion is the common thread running right through Deirdre McCluskey's rich career. McCluskey's core contention about persuasion is this. The most important job of an economist, or a physicist, or a doctor, or almost anyone in any sort of thinking job, is to perform rhetoric. And she doesn't just mean windy speechifying. She means rhetoric in the sense that the Greek philosopher Aristotle meant it. She means rhetoric in the sense of persuasion, of using, as she puts it, sweet talk, to change people's minds. And to make her point, she turns, as she often does, to the 18th century author, sometimes called the first real political economist, 
Adam Smith. Um, his first job was to teach 14-year-olds Scottish schoolboys writing. That was his first academic job. Mm. He was a, a teacher of composition. Mm. Um, and the, what what people would like is that they say something and then you just agree with it. Um, mat- mathematical proof is supposed to be this way. Uh, you prove the Pythagorean theorem. No, there's no persuasion about it, right? Bang, bang, bang. Well, that's never been true. Humans are human, and we need to be sweet-talked. We need to be persuaded of all kinds of things. The most important thing these days that we need to be persuaded, both in your country and mine, is to continue with the project of a free society. Because there's this terrible temptation, which some of our countrymen indulge in of uh, admiring the man on the white horse or the Nuremberg rally um, way of Mm. being in politics and that's just terribly dangerous so we have to we have to be um, creatures of tolerant persuasion McCluskey has even co-written a paper trying to pin down just how much of modern work is rhetoric. That is, how much is persuasion work and how big is the persuasion economy? She argues that this persuasion economy covers everything from lawyers to judges to building site supervisors to marketers to scientists. Her original paper calculated that persuasion was a big slice of the economy In rich countries, it was around a quarter of gross domestic product. An Australian Treasury economist, Jerry Antioch, revisited this idea in 2013 and argued that the US persuasion economy had expanded further to 30% of US GDP. Probably that number is even higher than 30% now. And it's probably roughly that size in Australia. The idea that persuasion really matters might seem a fine thing for a marketing executive to spout, but the idea that persuasion is central to economics and to other fields like philosophy probably seems an odd idea to most of us. The model we usually adopt shows persuasion as a sort of add-on. It's generally assumed that we figure out how we want to say something after we've figured out what it is that we want to say to people. So, you figure things out in your head, you write up your conclusion, and then you pass those words along to a communications team, and then the communications team changes those words as needed for the audience, and then the audience extracts those thoughts and feelings that were injected by the authors in the first place, and this is called the conduit metaphor. But McCluskey points out that Among communications academics, almost no one thinks of communications as just a conduit. In departments of communication, 
Mm. When we, we professors of communication are making fun of the naive view of what communication is, we call it the conduit theory. So it's like you, you remember in the old fashioned department stores that have those air tubes and they would send the receipt to the main office and then send it back. And that's not really how communication operates. So, put aside the conduit metaphor. Here's a more traditional but long-lived concept. In the long term, at least, we win or we lose the battle to persuade, at least partly through ideas. Persuading with ideas has two main strands. The first strand is this. How inherently well-suited is an idea to actually solve our problem? The second strand is not separate from the first, really, but intertwined with it. How well can an idea be used to persuade people to take it up? These two qualities, problem-solving ability and appeal to an audience, these two qualities might be thought of as separate, and they might be labelled substance and style, respectively. But that doesn't quite get at what's really going on. Clearly, Better ideas are inherently worth defending. By definition, better ideas will produce greater and more lasting advantage for those who can grasp and use them. But better ideas are also generally easier to defend. There's a greater chance that you can find persuasive arguments for them. Good ideas make persuasion easier. And we can see feedback working in the other direction too. The job of persuading makes ideas stronger. That is, in refining your persuasive language, where your ideas are weak and where they need strengthening. Writing and speaking your ideas tells you which strands of your argument you should use aggressively and which you should re-examine and reformulate and investigate further and perhaps even discard. None of this will come as a surprise to those who understand the history of the sciences. From astrophysics to gastroenterology, the hard sciences establish the strength of ideas through a huge web of discussions between people. Scientists try to persuade each other. And to do that persuasion, they mix data and interpretation with the techniques of persuasion in speech and writing. Deirdre McCluskey points to two of the most famous examples of persuasion in science. These are two of the discoveries which have best withstood the passage of time relatively unchanged. Isaac Newton's 1687 book, Principia Mathematica, that set out the laws of motion and gravitation. And James Watson and Francis Crick in 1953 wrote a report in Nature titled a structure for deoxyribose nucleic acid, and established the architecture of DNA, essentially the underlying structure of life. So, several studies of Watson and Crick's famous 1953 paper have argued that it was carefully designed to persuade, using rhetorical techniques such as voice and narrative and irony, and a few others with names like ethos, kairos, and stasis, taken from the Greek. 
the Greeks took these ideas much more seriously than we do today in some ways. And as McCluskey points out, Isaac Newton chose a particular course to persuade the scientific community of his ideas about motion and gravity. His persuasive strategy included expressing his ideas with less sophisticated mathematics than was actually possible. He himself had just invented calculus, but he intentionally kept it out of his masterwork, Principia Mathematica. Newton, in the Principia Mathematica, purposely expressed all his proofs in geometry, even though he had secretly invented calculus. When there were much simpler proofs of the proposition he was true propositions he was making about celestial mechanics and this, that, and the other thing um, uh, with this new invention, he and, he and Leibniz. And yet the style was necessary for the audience he was dealing with for two reasons. One thing, the best intellects at the time were very much into Euclid. And Spinoza was, and Bacon was, and Hobbes was, they were all, uh, um, they were all Euclidians. And uh, axiom and proof was how they were going to do things. Um, not simulation in the sort that one does with calculus. And the other reason which he articulated at one point, is to keep it secret. You had to be a first-rate intellect of the 1680s to understand his book. So what style and what substance here? The, the style conveys, um, conveys is not the word, that, that's the, that's the conduit theory, it expresses a, a view of what science should be. It's not just that the ideas are woven into the task of persuasion. The persuasion is also integral to the contest of ideas. We're, um, what's the word to use? We're, we're, we're charming other people, or we're bringing them on our side, hmm. or, not so nice, we're exercising our authority, our superiority. I'm a field medal winner in mathematics, and you're a mere ordinary professor of mathematics. Shut up. <laughs> it's one way of doing it, right? So it's, it's, it's persuasion all the way down, and that's perfectly natural, and there's nothing, there's, there's nothing French or Disgracefully postmodern about it. It's, it's the way humans have always been. We can put this another way. Persuasion or rhetoric is not so much like that box in which your Amazon parcel arrives. Rhetoric is more like the user interface on a piece of software. The language which expresses an idea, which persuades people to believe the idea, is in continual dialogue with the idea itself. They influence each other as they go back and forth. The rhetoric helps to question and fine-tune the idea, 
pinpointing weaknesses and strengths in the arguments. And as McCluskey points out, rhetoric used to be a starting point for this process of teaching people how to think. The ancient sophists in, in Sicily and then, then Athens um, were essentially the law professors of their time. And rhetoric was the basis of education in the West for 1,500 years and longer. Um, and, and they uh, would have exercises like an absolutely standard one, which we, we ought to do more these days, which is to have the kids have the, the young, it would always be boys, of course, they were doing this with, have the young boys make a case for one side of the argument and then say, okay, guys, now make the opposite case. I want to pause here to underline a point. This centrality of rhetoric, of persuasion, is not some weird theoretical idea that McCluskey's just come up with. Lots of people in practical positions make this point. To have influence, people need to do more than just develop theoretical models. They need to tell stories, even when those stories are backed up by theoretical models. Economics provides plenty of examples. Here's one from Ken Henry, a former Australian Treasury head and later National Australia Bank chairman. He's talking with podcaster Joe Walker, no relation, about the centrality of storytelling. Actually, my younger brother said to me somewhat unkindly the other day, and he's a mathematician, a theoretical physicist, and he said to me um, somewhat unkindly, he said, and yet it's true. He said, is economics really anything more than storytelling? Well, it's probably not. Not really. Storytelling through models. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Storytelling through models, yeah. It's the model that's going to give you some confidence in the intellectual rigor of the argument. But then you have to convert that formalized model uh, into something which is uh, a really compelling story, a story that grabs people's attention. You can find a link to the full version of that conversation with Ken Henry from Joe Walker's The Jolly Swagman podcast in the show notes at shawwalker.net. And to underline this point that storytelling should matter to economists, here's one of the world's most admired economists, Ed Lima talking in a UCLA video. My view is that in economics we need to create a culture that explicitly expresses our lack of knowledge and it allow people to say, that question's an interesting question, but frankly it's beyond the realm of economics in its current state actually to answer. You never find that thing, that kind of statement being made. I think it would be better if we added humility to the enterprise and recognize that what we do is patterns and stories. We're seeking patterns in the data sets that we look for, that we're examining, and we're telling stories about that. That's how we're creating knowledge. So, it's not just McCluskey who's emphasizing the importance of telling stories that make a point. It's people like Ken Henry and Ed Lima as well. We should probably accept that 
people in the sciences are telling stories a lot of the time, and especially in the social sciences. That's not a put-down in this context. Telling stories absolutely does not mean lying. Telling stories means presenting your arguments in a way that people can understand and retell those stories. One repercussion of all this seems to be that people should start intellectual projects with a goal in mind. The goal of telling their stories so that people can understand them. And how do you do that? Well, to start on any written work, it's a good idea to start getting good at writing. Or at least comfortable with writing. And that means, well, actually writing. Only writing will let you find out how to write well and to write in ways that persuade people to your arguments. I mean, it's an old cliche of uh, instruction in writing that the best way to learn to write is to write. <laughs> you want to be a novelist? Well, start writing novels. You know, come on, guy, <laughs> and apply posterior to chair, find writing implement write. Um, and uh, I, I find, and I'm sure you, you do too, that that style work is intellectually fruitful. Here's an example. It's an elementary proposition in prose style to express parallel ideas in parallel form. So yeah, I, I, I won't give an example. It'll be too hard. Um, and when you do that, and I find it all the time, I'm forced to see the parallel and to see, have I got that right? Is it really parallel? Is this an example of that? <laughs> See what I mean? So um, ideas are forced into existence by writing, speaking. Famous remark of Francis uh, Bacon that uh, reading maketh the full man. Writing maketh something like the precise man. By expressing an idea through writing, we somehow shape the idea itself. It's an inseparable part of the idea. And writing and speaking sometimes force new ideas right into existence. And sometimes they also force the ideas that you already have on the page into a better shape. And sometimes you only actually find out what your argument is at all when you write it. And then you look down at it and you get dissatisfied with the bad bits and you start improving it. And that's not a widely accepted notion, but it nevertheless seems to me to be true. It's not only true in the advice I give students and, and others, it's what it's an experience of my life. And you, you must have the same experience, that I don't know what I think until I say it. And sometimes I can say it, like in conversation with you, um, but I don't really get it clear until I've written it very well. I'm, I'm, I just finished a book called, uh, I keep changing the title a bit, but I think I call it 
God's economics. Um, public theology for an age of innovism. And it's a attempt to persuade my progressive Anglican, especially Anglican uh, believers, that they don't have to be socialists to be Christians. That's that's the theme of the book. But I didn't get it clear until a seminar we had last year, last November, and then it suddenly clicked and I started to see it and I could write it down. And as I wrote it, you know, it's, it, writing is thinking, I think is the simplest way of putting it. Mm. Talking is thinking too. If you're honest, if you're, if you're, if you're just a bullshit artist and you kind of sweep along on the surface, I know lots of intellectuals like that or scholars. And it's a great tragedy uh, because they don't they don't ask them they don't ask themselves is what I'm saying actually true? Mm. Just say it. So one of the repercussions of that for sort of for practical report writing is that you can't do it from the top. You can't look I mean, over something and say we need a report that says this and this and this. And um, it needs to address that and that and that and come to this conclusion. You've you've got to start with some thoughts, but you've got to accept that the people who do the work may come out with something different at the end of their process. Yeah, and and I profoundly, I don't think most people understand that because mostly they hear the word report and they remember what they did in high school chemistry where they would do these phony experiments that everyone knew how they were supposed to come out. And then they would write them up. And, you know, that's not thinking. That's typing. <laughs> that That's a wonderful remark that Ernest Hemingway made about uh, Jack Kerouac. That's not writing, that's typing. <laughs> And I think that, that that's right. We, Amy, uh, what is her name? That excellent writer. But anyway, she 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 says the pen is like a miner's pick finding the vein. Amy Dillard. Yeah, that, that's who it is. And she she says this. It's bitter. And and you're then the next sentence leads on to the next idea. And if you don't let that happen, if in your agency you think you can impose ideas down on your subordinates, and that's it, they're going to just type, not think. It's pointless. What, what you, you're, you're absolutely right. You should be having, but the, the problem is there has to be an attitude of honest discourse. Or else it's not going to work. If people are strategizing or trying to please the boss or whatever, it's not going to work. For several decades now, McCluskey has been writing and expanding her masterwork on writing. It started as an essay. These days, it's a book titled Just Economical Writing, available at all good bookstores. And since its early days, 
it is contained in insight you rarely hear talked about, and it's this. Far more than we usually think, most readers struggle to keep up with narrative, any sort of narrative. One of the most useful ideas in economical writing to me, at least it's in the 35 rule version, is that readers are sort of lost and unsatisfied a lot of the time. Oh, it's almost, almost nobody ever says this. You're um, always confused. I am. Aren't you? Yep. I mean, when I read something half the time, I don't know what I'm reading. I forget. Wait, wait, what's, what's this mean? I discovered slowly that a lot of people like me don't finish many of the books that they start. Tyler Cowan, for instance, I think says he finishes one in ten. No, um, I, I don't ever finish a book. You suggest that writers need to work very hard to keep readers awake. Yeah, just surely awake. I had a, I had a, a wonderful colleague in the history department at the University of um, Iowa, Bill Adelot. Like me, he was a, a British economic, a British historian. <laughs> and Bill said, the big thing in scholarship is to keep awake. <laughs> he said, if, you, if you're going to be a scholar, you're going to have to read a lot of boring things. So you've got to learn how to stay awake. And so vice versa. You gotta, you can't bore people not, you know, that seems an awfully harsh standard for some kid who doesn't, doesn't know writing very well. But you gotta keep them awake. Mm. Also in that book, you talk about how people get lost very easily in the words. You mentioned yeah. talking to a graduate student who assumed he had some sort of mental deficiency because he get, yeah. kept getting lost in the middle of a That's paragraph. Right. That's right. Um, That's right. He was amazed when I told him, look, everyone has this problem. Mm. He thought he was just as stupid. The other aspect of just how badly people deal with the whole issue of reading stuff is there's a there's a wonderful quote from the Atlantic I think from a woman called Pamela Paul who was and I think still is editor of the New York Review of Books and she said look it's a terrible thing you know but um I can remember the titles of books and the authors and the dust jackets and the subjects and all of this. What I can't remember is what the book actually said. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I, it's I amazingly true. Books. There's a green book, and sure enough, it's a green book. And then, let's see, what was that book about? Yeah. I'm 57. I feel a bit stupid that it's taken me all this time to figure out that an awful lot of what people write and read just passes through their head like it was a bird flying through a cloud. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, look, both you and I have read a great deal in our lives. Um, You know, way above the average 
for, for, for people of our society. And yet, you know, I, I, I own 6,000 books and I've read a lot of them. And you're right, there is a kind of, but, but there'll be a gem that you'll get from a book. On page 100, though, that'll be it. Umberto Eco at a personal library of 30,000 books. And he was asked, kept being asked by naive people, have you read all these? He finally came up with a very good answer. He said, no, I haven't read all these, but the next one may be the important one. It's a good answer. So people tend to forget what they read. One response to this is to try to repeat your message using this simple formula. Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell it to them, then tell them what you told them. That is sometimes called the preacher's rule because it frequently gets used in church sermons. McCluskey detests this rule because it makes your writing dull. There is a modern disease, which I warn against in the book, of say what you're going to say, say it. Say that you said it. It's claimed that Bertrand Russell formulated this. Now, he, he never did it. There's no essay of a book of Bertrand Russell in which he does this. But someone told me once that he, he said it, in which case he's burning in hell for it, because it, yes, you've got to keep people apprised not a prize, that's not a good word. You've got to keep them aware of the forward motion of your argument and your prose. But you can't keep stopping and telling them that. You can't say, you know, now I'm going to tell you about blah, blah. When you're talking about yourself, you're not talking about the, about the subject. So forget about that. Just, just use your skills as a, as a human being in conversation. Here's how I would suggest doing it. Not by stopping and saying my message is X, but by subtle repetition. Subtle. And the great advantage of word processing is that you can search your manuscript and find how you use words and phrases. And I've, I've gotten the habit of doing that, especially with books, long pieces. And the only way you're going to achieve any unity is to make sure you're using the same word to say the same thing every time you do it. And that doesn't mean you have to repeat the whole, repeat the whole phrase and get monotonous and he goes, yeah, why is he telling me this again? I, he already told me that. Shut up. No, don't, don't do that. But, um, do watch what you're using. I mean, for example, in this current book that I mentioned to you, which I just sent off to the press, who knows if they're going to accept it? I, I worked at lining up my vocabulary. So when I talked about, um, well, for example, this word innovism that I use in the title, or an age of innovism, that's a special word that I made up. 
as a substitute for capitalism, which is a scientifically wretched word. It's a silly damn word. It's very misleading about the economics, about how we actually got to be rich. Um, we didn't get to be rich by accumulating capital. We got to be rich by innovating, by thinking of new ways of uh, doing things. Um, and uh, so I made sure that I used the word innovism every time. And then, contrary-wise, I wanted to attack the word capitalism. So every time capitalism occurs in my book, it, and which isn't very often, I thinned it very much and didn't didn't mention it much because I find it disgraceful. But I put scare quotes around it <laughs> so they know that I don't like this word. All this brings us to a key issue for any report. What are the key messages, those few central messages that we want people to remember when they put the report down? The key messages are what we most want the public to know about a given report or issue. They answer the simple question, what did you find out? And how you answer that question with your key messages will usually make or break your report. But whatever you're writing, your key messages may take a long time to emerge. The quest to find your central message has no simple shortcuts. McCluskey has written 16 books and almost 400 articles, and she still struggles with defining the key messages. And once those key messages do emerge, you need to revise them yet again to make those key messages really clear. I usually don't really get the final message until I've written the book. I mean, so you've got to go back and rework. That's what you have to do. You have to then say, whoops, wait a second. I've the uh, there, there's a nice expression in journalism, burying the lead. The lead is the basic point of the of the news story. And if you there's this horrible modern convention in journalism, which has gotten worse and worse, of making every news story into a feature. So John was walking down the street and he noticed that there was a dog over to the side. And then finally it develops that there was a fire. (laughs) Who, what, when, why, how, just go right by the boards. It's so irritating. Whereas in the old days, the lead, bang, it would tell you what the damn point of the story was right away. So you have to find out What is the lead to your report? What's its one central message? Do you start with the end in mind or find your answer after sorting through the evidence? I asked McCluskey and found she argues for taking a careful middle course. In the world that I inhabit, the world of reports, there's an argument that, that says you shouldn't try and do anything too early. You should hold hearings and listen to evidence and weigh all of that up before you start coming to your conclusions. And so it seems to me it's it's all a rather delicate balance because trying to do it that way means that 
you're listening to people sort of in a vacuum. You don't know what your story is and you therefore don't know what they're contributing to it. That's exactly right. That's the problem. If you don't have a um, hypothesis, you can put it in terms of this rather foolish notion of the method of science, um, then you don't know what questions to ask. There is a passage in a Sherlock Holmes story where Doyle has Sherlock Holmes say, you mustn't speculate. Premature speculation is death to discovery. You should just look around. Well, maybe. Um, But then there's a kind of opposite point, which a great... um, philosopher of history and archaeologist himself and historian of Roman Britain, whose name I'm going to forget, wrote in a famous book published after his death, 1945, called The Idea of History. And there he said, scissors and paste history is just collecting all the data there is and looking around the crime scene and looking aimlessly at everything. Whereas he says, and he's got this long passage about a detective who has a hypothesis of who the murderer is Mm. and goes that way. And those are two completely separate ways. And in a way, you have to both. McCluskey has another lesson to teach. Take care to add illustrations and diagrams and charts wherever they can help. People who want to seem sophisticated sometimes look down on pictures, but they're frequently the best way of getting a point across. And not just to ordinary people going about their daily business, but also to some of the very smartest people in the world. For a year, I was at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, the famous Einstein Institute. I was over with the social scientists. Every morning and afternoon, there was a more or less compulsory tea. You had to go and have tea and cookies with the other fellows. And what I was very amused to see that most of the fellows at the Institute are mathematicians. And I could see the mathematicians talking to each other by drawing little diagrams on their palm. <laughs> I found that very amusing. These are... These are very high-level mathematicians, and they they were making now see it goes up and then it goes down. They're making very simple points. We should end by looking just briefly at the deep-down problem we're grappling with whenever we try to persuade people of a case. Professor Deirdre McCluskey makes this point with typical force. We have to accept that persuasion is hard. That's not easy. We live in a world that thinks the opposite. A world that thinks that everyone can be persuaded, sometimes against our will, often by dark forces, the advertising industry or lobbyists or the politicians. Their word is manipulation. That's their big word. But people who actually dig around and find out whether their ad spend really works often discover something else. The power of advertising to manipulate us is less than they think and less than we mostly think. If it were easy, 
to persuade people in science or in marital relations or in politics or in, in buying lucky strikes, the, the people doing it would, would be very wealthy. There would be $500 bills lying around all over the place. And it would be just so easy. And um, it's not. There aren't any $500 bills. Mm. People believe there are. They wish there were. And then they they develop conspiracy theories about how the, the terrible advertisers are. You know, you remember that old film, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers? That's that's what they think is happening, that, that the advertisers are taking over our minds. Except what's irritating about that argument is that there's these people who say that advertising is terribly, terribly manipulative and important and and the surveillance capitalism and so on. They say it's the stupid people who get manipulated. I, of course, don't. <laughs> I can see through it. I have special insights. So if the power of that sort of commercial messaging is generally overstated, then the corollary presumably is that the raw power of ideas is understated. The yeah. ideas rule us much more than we think they do. A great deal more. That's one of McCluskey's core intellectual principles, the idea that ideas really do matter. But still... Persuasion is hard. And when McCluskey herself tries to persuade people of something, she does no better than anyone else. It almost never works. It's very frustrating. I mean, we're, we as, uh, as scholars, scientists, journalists, politicians, whatever, wives, husbands, whatever we are, we're always trying to, trying to get through to people. Not necessarily even to bring them to our side, but to have an intelligent, open discussion. And, uh, well, here, here's an example. I've been arguing for 40 years, along with many other statisticians, applied and theoretical statisticians, that a certain technique, tests of statistical significance, is bollocks. It's complete rubbish. It makes no sense at all. And this has been known for about a hundred years. And, uh, yet, <laughs> yet some scientists, not too many, economists, medical scientists, sociologists and psychologists and, and political scientists go on using this machine because they love machines. It's part of modernism. They found the little machine, and they can put three asterisks over a coefficient, and it makes them feel very good. And it's complete craziness. And I've tried everything to get this across. I've made fun of them. I've tried to sidle up to them and be very friendly and nice and try to compromise, and nothing works. Nothing works. Abraham Lincoln, in 1842, spoke to the the Temperance Society, the Temperance Society of um, Springfield, Illinois, 
as, as a young man. And he said, if you want to persuade, now by that time he was an experienced trial lawyer. And he knew, to the extent he could, he knew how to persuade me. And he said, if you want to persuade someone, you first have to persuade them that you are their sincere friend. If all you can do is what I do with statistical significance is say, you dopes, don't you see this is ridiculous? Abraham Lincoln says they'll turn away from you and they won't be persuaded. But Abraham Lincoln did not say you should stop after you persuade someone you are their friend. He argued you still have work to do. During his famous 1858 debates with Stephen A. Douglas, Lincoln said this, If a man says he knows a thing, then he must show how he knows it. Deidre McCluskey takes the same stance. Here's the answer, though. The liberal approach to another human being is to treat them like reasonable adults with ethical standards. And whether it works or not, frankly, I don't care too much. I feel that it enacts liberalism in a deep sense, not just the Liberal Party of Australia or something, but real liberalism. The the great ethical, political turn made us who we are, made us the egalitarians that Australians are more than Americans, of course, and made us um, respect each other, makes, makes intellectual conversations such as we're now having possible, uh, is to treat each other as though <laughs> reason, evidence, sober consideration of the pros and cons was what how we should make decisions. Now, whether we actually do or not is, um, alas, not, not as common as it should be. So there, there, there's kind of a liberal program in good writing, in honest persuasion, honest sweet talk, that, that, uh, instantiates, to use what the English professors like to say, instantiates an ethical, liberal, I would say even a Christian attitude towards other people. And that's probably a good note on which to end it. Well, I've, um, I've, I've enjoyed this very much, Dave. This has been the Shawwalker Reports podcast a podcast about creating better public reports. Shawwalker DMS helps businesses and governments to shape and edit your economic, social, business, technical and scientific content so that it better persuades today's critical audiences. We're on the web at shawwalker.net. That's 
s-h-o-r-e-w-a-l-k-e-r.net or call us on 03 8899 7790.